Hello and welcome to Paramedicast. Our guest today is Coco Tang, a paramedic from the US. She's worked globally since 2013 with a huge list of countries in which she has led humanitarian missions and organised medical training. On top of this, Coco has delivered medical aid during conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine. Coco has specialist credentials as a critical care, community and tactical paramedic, as well as a disease and infection control officer. She now works as a tactical combat casualty care instructor and currently serves as a second lieutenant in the US Army. Coco is currently a senior member of two medical non-governmental organizations, Global Response Management and Global Outreach Doctors. Both operate in multiple countries around the world. It's great to speak to you today, Coco, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Poppy. Please, could you give us an overview of your career so far and why you chose to take this route? Sure. Um, So uh, I started out uh, in undergrad as an emergency medical technician, as an ambulance driver making house calls with like a volunteer fire department. And then from there, I started working for a paid ambulance service. Um, And then I went overseas to Jordan in the Middle East on the Boren and Fulbright Fellowships. And because I was doing some academic research inside the Syrian refugee camps, I got involved with some cross-border medevac Um, service there with like a health department. Um, So it kind of opened my eyes to the whole international humanitarian community. And oh, wow, like there's a there's a whole world out there where I can contribute my my skills um, in EMS. Uh, So that kind of snowballed. I then started volunteering for missions in Philippines and I went to Sierra Leone and then Nepal. I kind of started out paying my own way, just jumping on whatever project I could find as a volunteer. And then once you do that long enough, you kind of build a name for yourself. People start to notice you um, and then you get invited uh, on certain disaster response rosters and then people start calling you the next time, you know, like a major international event kicks off. Um, So then I got to be involved with the Rohingya refugee crisis, started teaching EMS in Myanmar and West Africa. And then I got involved with sort of the more major paid positions like Afghanistan or Iraq, Syria and Ukraine. Yep, that's pretty much how I got started. What sorts of organizations did you contact to begin with? Were they NGOs? Yeah, so they're mostly, when I started out, I was reaching out to international medical NGOs. Actually, so some of them weren't necessarily even medical NGOs. So for example, um, the first mission that I kind of put myself out there was with an organization called All Hands, All Hands Volunteer. They were working in the Philippines right after Typhoon Haiyan hit. Um, and I went there as just like a normal volunteer. Um, it, it just so happened that during the course of my time there, uh, there were a few medical cases that I helped out at, but it was not like an exclusively medical mission. The other ones, West African Medical Mission, yes, I got involved with that specifically to help with the Ebola crisis and, you know, like Jordan Health Aid Society. Those were all actual international medical organizations. And also just to clarify, so this is all civilian. Um, I know obviously you're in the military at the moment, but none of this was um, military organizations or military work. Correct. The military is something that only happened in the past year. All of the quote, quote, cool stuff that I've done have been pre-army. So could you kind of give us an overview of what the work was like? Were you kind of based in a hospital? Were you out on the road? Yeah. So every mission was pretty different, I would say. Um, and, and it just depended on what you went there for and what the environment was like. So, for example, the Philippines, we were, well, because it wasn't like a medical volunteer, we slept in kind of like bunk situations. Um, in Bangladesh, it was, um, they gave us the option to stay in a hotel. 
Um, so I think most of us did that, but we worked out of uh, a clinic that was set up in the tent city in Cox's Bazaar, which is where the refugees were. In Congo, we either um, found like missionary lodging that was left behind, or we found kind of guest houses. Um, and at one point, I think we were staying where uh, like a former UN sort of team had housing left over. In Myanmar, we were staying in hotel slash guest houses. In Greece, we rented like a house. Um, so it, it just really depends. Everywhere has been quite different. But in terms of work environment, that varied significantly. So like in Nepal, for example, um, I was there after the 2015 earthquake. Um, most of the places that we went to, like in the rural areas or like in the countryside, um, they were inaccessible to vehicles because of landslides. So the medical teams had to take, you know, like kind of overland vehicles, get as far as they could, and then hike the rest of the way into a village carrying medical supplies. And then we literally set up camp, like in tents and stuff. So we said, we like set up medical camp. And then the next day we would find some kind of courtyard or maybe a, a intact-ish building to make like an outdoor open clinic that people could come to. In Sierra Leone, uh, my team had like a little house to ourselves and then we slept on mattresses on the floor and then we worked out of like a community center um, where we basically taught locals how to conduct outreach initiatives during Ebola crisis. In Iraq, uh, we stayed with the Iraqi special forces on the front line. So wherever the front line was, we were a few kilometers behind them and we converted like taking over ISIS, former ISIS houses into clinics. I don't know if that answers your question. I know I'm kind of going on a rant now, but it goes to show what I'm trying to show is every mission was different and unique in terms of where we stayed and where we were. Absolutely. It's just it's a huge range of settings by the sound of it. And, you know, some much more dangerous than others. And as you said, like sometimes you're doing a teaching role, sometimes you are hosting clinic. So you, you weren't ever kind of out on the ambulance in the way that you would be if you're working back in the U.S.? So I would say most of my overseas engagement have not been kind of ambulance focused. Um, in Iraq, I, you know, obviously worked on an ambulance a few times, but that was trans helping to transport people to and from the front lines um, and stuff. But no, by and large, overseas, my role has been more non-ambulance. Were the clinics um, led by doctors or were they sort of paramedic led? So again, it just depended. There's like really not a good overall kind of generalization I can give for all of these missions just because they were so different. But the rescue or EMS teaching side tended to be a lot more paramedic led. And also, so like in Afghanistan, Ukraine, and I want to say Syria, there were a good number of paramedics that work along with us. Um, but usually um, most of the humanitarian missions tend to have other nurses or doctors or, you know, other medical specialties along with you. One thing that I've heard from paramedics who've worked in humanitarian settings is that um, sometimes they're seen, so their skills aren't really understood, especially in countries which don't really have paramedics. Yeah. So I was wondering, did you always feel like your paramedic skills were put to good use or did you sometimes feel, for example, like a, a nurse or an extra pair of hands almost? Yeah, so that that's a really good question. Um, and I would say that that lack of understanding doesn't just extend to other countries. I feel like a lot of, like even US-based like if you are, if you run an NGO, for example, um, like I had 
realized working with a lot of these groups is they they don't even understand what paramedics do or like where to fit you in. So overseas, obviously, there's hardly a distinction. If I'm talking to a villager and I'm the first healthcare provider they've ever seen in their lives, there's really no distinction on their end. If you're a medic or a doctor or a nurse, you know, they come to you expecting you to resolve the full spectrum of their medical problems, no matter what certification you are. So from that point of view, yes, I sometimes I felt like I was being treated as a doctor and other times like from their end there's really no distinction but for my team members sometimes it was like oh well I don't know if you're able to do this but you know just show me what you can do and in the beginning at least it felt a little bit more like I had to take more of my skill set and achievement to every mission like every conversation and improve that I I'm, I'm supposed to be there like this is what I bring to the table but I think that culture's sort of shifted in the last few years from what I can see, um, like more missions are calling for paramedics. And a lot of these paid positions are specifically written for paramedics. And that's really cool to see um, because I think as medics, we have a lot of useful skills that maybe nurses and doctors were in hospital professionals don't get to apply as much just from having exposure to like rescue or hazmat or Um, Even going to make house calls, like you develop a lot of these skills that maybe hospital settings don't give you as much. Absolutely. And then, you know, if these roles are being specifically written for paramedics, you'd hope that whoever's written that, you know, application has a good understanding of what paramedic skills actually is. Yeah. So I would say by and large, like the biggest kind of flex that I think being a medic has is our field experience. I've worked with some doctors who maybe it was their first time going out in like a humanitarian setting in like an austere remote environment. And I don't want to use the word lost, but they seemed a little less comfortable navigating it because they're so used to, you know, like people handing them stuff in like a hospital um, or having like a pharmacy readily available to them. Whereas the norm, I would say, for a field environment is putting together like a, a crack pharmacy from whatever local pharmacies that you can source medicine from. Um, I think in, when I was in Congo, um, we were trying to build out our pharmacy kit before going in country. So we were in, I think, Rwanda at the time. Um, we literally bought out like half of the pharmacy <laughs> with the drugs that we needed. And so it was actually a doctor who helped coordinate that. It was really helpful. I don't want people to think I'm like digging on doctors. The point is, Medics have a lot of field experience that I think is not initially well understood by by NGOs or other employers. But that gap, I think, is being bridged pretty well in the last few years. That's really interesting. Um, really interesting way to look at it, because, you know, while you were talking, I was thinking we're mostly trained to sort of deal with acute and emergency presentations. But in the setting that you're talking about, where you're almost waiting for the patient to come to the clinic, um, I'd imagine it's a lot of chronic, you know, minor illnesses, those kind of presentations. So it's actually an entirely different set of presentations that you need to be familiar with. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. So I would say maybe 80% of my experience overseas has been more with primary care, um, which is funny, even in like a war environment like Iraq, for example, um, a lot of the people who came to my trauma stabilization point, like when when there was an active operations going on, like civilians could just come to our clinic and ask for help. They wanted solutions for, you know, like hypertension or diabetes or you know, like a pregnancy check or something like, like typical medical problems that you would see people coming to like a a normal health clinic for not necessarily an emergency. 
I've got quite a sort of abstract question here, which might be a bit difficult to answer, but given that you've got so much experience of all these different, what do you call them? Uh, not placements. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, missions or? Yeah, missions, all these different missions. Is there any kind of common factor that defines whether a mission is well run or poorly run? Yes. So for me, a mission is well run if you have clear objectives on what you want to achieve. So I have noticed having been in the industry for so long, um, there's a lot of what's called like disaster tourism or medical tourism where, and not to diss on those projects, um, some of them you pay to play, you know, like I I pay an organization $3,000 and then I go work in a clinic um, for a certain amount of time. And some of those do amazing work. And the reason that they've been able to upkeep a project for so long and with like such consistent staff rotation is because they take that money from, from volunteers. But I've also come across projects where, you know, you pay to play and then you show up and it's like a photo op for you. There's like no real impact that you're making. You know, you show up, you help build an orphanage and you maybe take some vitals and then that's the extent of your involvement. So I think how well a project is run for me is what is your purpose there and how good are you at achieving that purpose? Um, Even if you're there for a short term, like you're there for two weeks of a much longer project, like I was in one of my um, missions in Syria, for example, I I went to Al-Hul for, I think, three weeks, but that project had been there much longer than me. And And then afterwards, it was still there, like after I left. Um, but I was there specifically for a, a like a task list. So I was helping to set up their transfer process or help set up their transfer process. And then I held um, an ACLS training course for the hospital or the clinical staff there. ACLS is advanced cardiac life support. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I mean, it, it's left me thinking whether it's possible to spot this from the outside as a layman kind of pick up on the signs that might indicate that it's what you call disaster tourism and not so not such a sort of well-defined um, NGO with good objectives. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I don't know that I have necessarily a good answer for it because I, I, I can't say that I've been involved with a project that I definitely was like, oh, this is clearly disaster tourism and it's dumb. But I, I've seen them uh, while I was overseas. So one time, so when I was in Nepal responding to the, the earthquake, we were driving around and then I would see these people in red vests delivering rice, but they would deliver them to a local, like take a picture of like them delivering the rice, handing it off to a local. And then they just kind of left them there. (laughs) So then the locals sort of took the rice and almost kind of like set up shop, like literally turned it into into a shop. So that was really interesting to see. I I don't know. And I I don't want to like put names or projects out there, frankly, because I I don't remember their names, but they they definitely exist. So I I would just say if you're looking to join a a project that seems sus to you, just do your research. Like it never hurts to like email the point of contact or or call someone and and see. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And just kind of the idea that sounding someone out first, you might, you know, if you have a face-to-face conversation with someone working from the NGO, it might give you a good idea of how developed the project is, how much they've really done their research. Yeah, I mean, it's really only on the development. Sorry, I meant to say it's not really only on the development side that this happens. Um, A lot of times NGOs, like, for example, if a disaster pops up somewhere, there's almost like a rush to be first in. And 
it's to the detriment of some organizations and 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 oftentimes like the host country because you go there without a clear connection without a clear mission and then you're just kind of even standing on a tarmac twiddling your thumbs with all this rescue supplies not really sure where to go um or you do end up somewhere but it's like not a well-established mission and so you don't really know what you're doing and you end up kind of taking away from local resources. So I, I, I did see a little bit of that too, actually a lot of it um, overseas. And that's, I would say, kind of the negative side of this industry. Yeah, I'm sure that a lot of what you just described is going on with Ukraine at the moment. Yeah, there for, there for sure is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on. So what have been the real highlights of your career so far? Oh, um, let's see. So for me, instances where someone like a a patient that I'm seeing discloses to me that I'm the first ever healthcare provider that they have ever seen in their lives. That's always pretty cool. So in the US, you know, if I work an ambulance shift, it's whatever, like that shift is going to be worked regardless of whether or not I'm the person sitting in that seat. But overseas, like literally I'm the first medical provider that someone has ever, ever seen in their lives. Um, And to me, like that impact just hits home tenfold because the impact that I have in their lives is so much more magnified than the impact that I could have here. I'm not, not to say that I don't have impact um, on people's lives here when I work in ambulance, um, but I would say that's definitely a highlight. And also being able to show compassion to people who maybe have not gotten it in their lives. So I felt this a lot when I was working in the Al refugee camp in Syria. In the annex, in our, our clinic, we had a lot of patients who were the family members of killed or captured ISIS members. And, you know, like the international community treats them with disdain and hate. But as a healthcare provider, we treat them as like any other patient. And like, that's just, it's, it's normal. Um, and it's not something that you really think about, but I, I was having a conversation with um, a friend like that year after I came back and she was like, oh, how could you even think to be kind to them? Like, you must be so mad because those were literally the people that could have tried to kill you and your team just two years ago. But that was, you know, that was pretty cool. Um, and, and also just in general, using medicine as like a vehicle for travel um, is pretty cool. I've been I've been very fortunate in the places that I've been able to go to um, parts of the world that, you know, people don't necessarily easily get to see um, that medicine has allowed me to see and I don't know, navigate the landscape and the cultures. And it's been nice. Is there any way is there anywhere that you're desperate to go back to as a tourist? As a tourist, I would like to go back to Iran. So I got to go, not for anything medically related, but I got to see Iran in 2016 when it was still possible for Americans to go. And it's just, it was an incredible country. Like it blew away my expectations really and how warm and inviting um, and open the locals were um, and how embracing they were of the fact that I was American. There's just so much like culture and history that gets overshadowed. um, I feel like in our cultures because of the news and of politics um, that I think people are missing out on. And I wish I had more time to explore more of the country. Just circling back to something you said a moment ago that you may have, well, you've been for some people the first medical professional they've ever seen. Do you find it difficult to cope with that level of responsibility? Yes and no. Um, So in my notes, I had written this down as a drawback, which is Something that's kind of inherent in humanitarian missions is I, I during my term of involvement, may never 
versus where my work ends up, if that makes any sense. Like I might not see the end result of my involvement with a project or a mission. Um, so I call this kind of like the Muzungu effect. Muzungu being, um, I think, what I can't remember it was with Ethiopia, but they use this word to de describe like a foreigner, basically <laughs> like a white person who comes. And then there's a, this expectation from locals, especially if it's a country that's received a lot of international aid that you just pop in, you know, give them money or you pop in, you build like a hospital, you pop in, you give a project and then you leave. And then sort of the responsibility of where that money, where the project, where, where that infrastructure ends up is sort of out of your hands. Um, and after iterations of several NGOs, several teams doing this over many, many years, you know, it becomes this kind of like dependent cycle. I had an interaction overseas where actually multiple interactions overseas where they just expected us, to, oh, we'll just take your money and you can leave. Bye. And then I straight up had another person ask me, this was while I was doing um, gender-based violence assessments in South Kivu in Congo in the DRC. And one uh, family had disclosed to me, basically told me the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their lives. And then asked us what we were going to do for them. Like, are you going to give us out of the situation? Like, how are you going to help us? You know, it's, it's a really hard conversation to have when you're like, oh, like, sorry, there's nothing that I can do for you right now. I can't get you out of the situation because that's not my mission there. My mission there was to collect health data and do assessments. So sorry, out of luck for you. Like, it, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to say. And that's not unique to that mission like I you know you inevitably working in the humanitarian field come across that a lot there's either too much expectation from you because maybe they see you as like their only possibility for for a savior or something or there's so little expectation of you because of like the historical precedents of people who've set before you of you just coming and going and coming and going does that make sense it does and it just I mean I don't think I appreciated before speaking to you how sort of psychologically difficult a lot of this work is firstly what you've just said about how either too much or just too little is expected of you but also what you were talking about earlier that you might be treating people who were trying to kill you or your friends years ago or months ago or even days ago oh gosh I don't know how I would cope with that with those psychological challenges yeah I would say so one one thing that kind of has stuck with me is um so also on the mission in Congo, we were interviewing with this young girl. She was, I think, 15 at the time. She came to our clinic, um, but she was basically she was gang raped at age 13. And it was so savage that she developed like a rectal anal fistula. And she was also invest, uh, impregnated by the gang rape. Um, so when the baby tried to deliver it, you almost delivered out of her rectum and she was very traumatized by this and became nonverbal so her mother had to kind of retell her story to us on her behalf but that was the question of well what are you going to do for us now that we've told you this horrible thing that's happened to my daughter like what what is your solution that was unfortunately outside of the scope of what we were trying to achieve on that mission so it was just it's stuff like that that sticks with you and it makes you feel supremely like helpless like you're so, so like far removed from where and how these solutions happen and they might happen, but you know, like months, years down the road, like long after you've left the country or even left the project, 
that you'll just, you'll never get to see. And like all these people that you have touch points with, you might never see again. You don't know where they end up. Like the patients that I've treated, uh, like especially the ISIS families, I don't know where they ended up. And I treated them knowing that, you know, some of them might never be repatriated. They'll just live as these stateless humans. Um, Some of them might go to prison. Some of them might return to their ISIS families and, or continue their work and be killed. And I, I don't know. And that kind of sucks. It does. I mean, it's bad enough as a paramedic, um, you know, in the UK or the US, where you drop the patient off at hospital and then you don't really find out what's happened to them. You know, you are so invested in their care, but knowing that there's really no safety net and there's no one that you can signpost them to when you're on one of these humanitarian missions and, you know, it's not in the remit of what you're doing there to help with their problems. It's definitely different. Like dropping someone off at a hospital, I'm dropping them off at a higher level of care, but leaving some of these missions, you know, I'm potentially leaving them to no follow on care. So Coco, you've touched on it a little bit, but what have been the main drawbacks of um, following this career path? Uh, Well, so it's the thing that I I mentioned earlier about the slow turnaround, not kind of seeing where your projects end up. Um, and then that Muzungu effect of feeling very powerless, like within your own organizations or just the organization of the industry in general, um, not being able to give the help that people ask you for having too little or too much expectations of you. And on a personal level, I mean, have you found it difficult to sort of maintain friendships um, in the US or has it not been that detrimental? <laughs> so I guess I kind of see friendships on several spectrums. Like, you know, I... I I'm an introverted person by nature, but I can be very extroverted if I need to be. So for a lot of these missions, I have to take on this like grander than than life persona in order to make the connections that I need to, to make some of like my networks connect and um, get assets where I need them. Um, So making friends is not hard at all uh, if you are personable. But what I struggle with is once I leave a place, it's kind of like, out of sight, out of mind for me. And I I think it's just because I'm very sort of like fatigued from travel. You know, if I try to stay in touch with everyone I've ever had contact with in all of my countries, that's would become my full-time job. So I'm, I, Coco, am personally bad about keeping touch with friends that I make overseas or on missions or, or someplace that I've met them. But I, I can't say that for everyone, you know, occasionally I remember someone or I'm passing through their country and I'm like hey are you still there like I'm passing through uh do you want to meet up grab a bite or I'll buy you a beer or something so that's been fine I I would say mostly friendships is is fine I would say you might have a harder time like you know having a a family or I guess if you're trying to do international multi-country relationships that sort of thing you might run into some challenges that is not to say so one of the questions I saw you wanted to ask me is um, family life it's not impossible to have a family plenty of people that I've worked with have families uh, but they just mostly do projects that are you know two weeks to one month instead of assignments that are one year two years three years like you're really in that country, especially if it's a contract or an opportunity where it doesn't allow dependents to travel with you. But, you know, it, it's like with anything else, like time management and how strong you are in your relationship, um, what you can wrangle out of a contract. Like, can I have my wife here and still have it be fulfilling? Stuff like that. It's just an extra consideration. That was going to be my next question is about family that you sort of answered to in one there. Do you know of anyone who has moved their family out to a different country? Yes. So, but those were for 
like kind of longer term projects. Like they knew they were going to be taking ownership of this part of the project for, you know, the foreseeable future, two, three years. I all, I know people who straight up bought houses in the country that they were working at. For my perspective, if I were to do that, it would then kind of limit me to working only in that arena. Whereas if your goal is more to get as much experience possible and go to as many missions as possible, then that might not be the best approach for you. But also in those situations, like the spouse is also usually involved in some way. So, you know, you'll have like one member of the family is doing management for this NGO and the spouse is teaching or they're a nurse and they work in the clinic or they're also helping out with the NGO, but in like a different capacity. So it, it's like a teamwork kind of thing. And I think that's like the best approach to it because you don't want to be in a country and have your dependent have nothing to do in like a foreign culture, not speaking the language and having to kind of navigate everything by themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Another question I was going to ask is, do you notice people working in these settings from all age groups? Definitely all age groups. Um, And I think the deeper entrenched, so starting out, I would say I noticed a lot more younger people doing you know, like the grunt work, like the field work or the leg work or stuff. But the more I got entrenched in this, like the more I saw, oh, like you are in your 60s and still doing this. And a lot of uh, like the returning regulars, like people who return to the same missions uh, year after year, they tend to be a little bit older because, you know, they've just had some like such longevity with the project or or like a country. Um, it's like they're project baby or like side baby I don't know how you would call it but like they they have become so attached to it like this is something that they've built up over the last 10-20 years but there's like a a pretty good mixture like even in some of like the war support that I've done um, you know I've worked with doctors who were like late career or they they retired and they're doing this or along with people who were like me you know like 20 24 25 um, and it was like their first time going out all bright eyed and like, I'm here to make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> so my next question was, so when you're working back in the US, do you notice how your skill set has expanded? I mean, sort of working in these unconventional settings, do you notice any differences in your practice as a medic? Yes, definitely. So since I started doing this, I no longer work in the US, um, except, you know, like the occasional like novelty projects. So I I don't do routine EMS transport in the U.S. anymore is what I'm trying to say. Like occasionally I'll staff an event that requires uh, maybe ALS or something. Or most recently I worked as a medic for Naked and Afraid. So I was out with the cast members in in the swamps filming. So yes, there's definitely a larger scope of practice for me overseas. And I don't know if it's my place to sort of comment on the ethics of that because what I can do overseas a lot of times far exceeds what I can do in, in the U.S., um, especially if I'm working in, in like a state or under a program with a little more restrictive medical protocol. And that's more from being overseas, like there's less enforcement. So good NGOs or organizations will have very clear cut medical direction or medical protocol that you follow. And if you work a defense contractor, like, you know, absolutely, you this is what you fall under. But some of the more nebulous area comes in, like the team you're working with isn't so familiar with your skill set or your scope of practice. And obviously the locals wouldn't know. So that's, you know, kind of an area that it's up to the individual to navigate. I can see how it could go awry 
if you're like, oh, you know, suddenly I have all this freedom to do whatever the heck I want. Now I'm, this is my opportunity to, to practice the pericardiosynthesis, or this is my opportunity to do a finger thoracostomy because I can't do that in the US. Like that's obviously not the way to do it, but it, it you know, it, it certainly helped me develop my skills because how should I put this without it sounding bad? Like being able to accurately give an antibiotic that I normally wouldn't be able to prescribe in the U.S. because it's out of my scope of practice. Like it's it's that sort of stuff that helps me develop my critical thinking a little bit more or doing wound care with unconventional items because that's all we have on hand. But in the U.S. that would not be allowed because those are not technically the correct you know, items or performing sutures, a non-sterile environment, because, you know, we don't have a sterile environment. It's like stuff like that. That's fascinating. And so interesting that there's this emphasis on sort of self-regulation. Yeah. And it goes to your point earlier about how normalizing paramedics is still somewhat of a novelty, like a new thing. So I, I've still worked with people and teams that they're like, Hey, so I don't really know what you guys are capable of doing. Um, so there is a bit of self-advocacy that has to happen. And if you're one of those people who's like, I'm going to take every advantage and do everything I can. And, you know, you know, that's great, but do it in like a, a safe manner without harming anyone. <laughs> you should go without saying, but yeah. What non-medical skills do you think are vital to working in the sector? Languages has been my my biggest one, um, especially in like the Middle East. So being female, Arabic speaking, uh, it's opened a lot of doors for me, but not even that. So like when I was in Ukraine, I, you know, actively learned Russian. So try and communicate better with the locals. Like every everywhere I go, I try to take advantage of like the local resources to practice like my language. I would say that's like the biggest asset. And it's it, it's your biggest flex, honestly. If you go to a place and you're the only member of a team that speaks that language, you you're you're a rock star. Every like I communicated so much more easily with my Iraqi counterparts just because you know I could sit by a hookah and chit chat with them and you know, like bullshit about the day. But like the rapport you're able to build through language cannot be understated. And I would just say on a personal level, having good travel experience and cross-cultural experiences is a huge asset. So there were a lot of missions that I went on where it was with someone, maybe it was their first time and they are just kind of lost in the sauce, like navigating a culture or like, this is going to sound, this might be unpopular, but having the flexibility or maybe lowering your expectations. For example, like if you're on a vegan diet and you're working in a remote part of Ethiopia, it might not work out so well for you. There's really only like one thing you can eat and you would be eating that for like every meal because you, I, I get it if you have to be vegetarian or vegan, vegan on like a, for a medical reason. But if you're doing it by choice, I would just say have the flexibility to alter your expectations when you're in that kind of environment, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So so languages and flexibility, golden nuggets, top two ways you can. Yeah. Learn. And, and lowering your expectations. It, so on, on missions where I got to sleep in a hotel or had a guest house or like the team had like lodging, that was great. But on missions where we were camping, where I literally slept on a mattress on the floor or in cases in Iraq, I slept on a roof on a tarp. You know, some people are not just like not able to live like that or not comfortable living like that. But, you know, if you go there with no expectations, you can ever only be positively surprised. 
So on a slightly different tack, what changes do you think are taking place in the pre-hospital humanitarian sector at the moment? I know you said already there's lots of opportunities coming up specifically for paramedics. Yeah. So when I started out, I was getting asked a lot more of what what is it that you do? Like, what's your skill set? I haven't really worked with a medic before. But now, especially with these larger organizations that kind of have international chapters, if you will, like medics is, is written in part of who they call for to be on their rosters or like immediate response teams and stuff like that. So there's definitely a lot of growth from that perspective. Um, And there's also growth in the sense that a lot of these medics are going out and starting similar kind of organizations. So these grassroots organizations are popping up. But then the negative side of that is it's now certain like sectors are becoming oversaturated um, and there's a lot of competition and it leads to people fighting to be first in and then which you know, leads to what we discussed earlier about disaster tourism, like you're there so your organization can get a headline and grab some photos and, and stuff like that. But it's it's interesting to see how, how this industry has developed in the last few years and, and where it will go. Absolutely. And is there a similar spread of short term projects and long term projects or do you feel like that landscape is changing as well? I would, so that's kind of hard for me to answer because I, I can't even say that I've been in the industry for, for super long. Maybe if you interview me again in like three or five years, I can give you a more definitive answer. But at least right now, there's like a good mix, honestly, between longer term projects and shorter term projects. If sort of like disaster response, like that high speed, like pack a bag and leave in 24 hours is not quite your flavor. There's really no shortage of these pre-existing or like longer term existing projects to get involved in. You just kind of need to know where to look and who to contact. So for example, one organization that I'm involved with, Global Response Management, we have like an ongoing clinical operation in Matamoros, Mexico since you know, like 2019, 2020. um, And we're always rotating volunteers through there. So we're periodically, we have to staff our rosters and we're putting like calls for volunteers out there to come and staff the clinic. So, you know, like those are really good places to look if you are wanting to get your feet wet, see um, how these international organizations work. Um, I think also we've worked out like a way for I don't remember if it was nursing students or medic students to get placement there um, for credit. Um, so if you can find these kinds of projects and, you know, work something out, that's that's really like fantastic. Well, that brings me very nicely onto my final questions. So you've, you've obviously given so much advice already, but are there any further bits of advice you give to paramedics who have an interest in humanitarian medicine? Yes. Number one, back to my point about lowering your expectations, especially when you're starting out, um, realize that like these high speed contracts or high speed work placements come with time and that comes with experience. So if I'm a a project manager, which I have been, and I'm sifting through applications, which I have done um, to see who I would be a a good addition to my team, I'm not going to select the person who's like fresh out of school, no experience, whatever. But if I have seen that they've volunteered in this project or they do, they're involved with search and rescue in their home region, or they've done a lot of stuff, but not necessarily in like a a paid capacity or like an official um, mission capacity, but I can show that they, they they can show that they have the initiative to put themselves out there um, and seek out opportunities. Like that's the person that I might be like, Hey, I'm going to give them a shot. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea that you need to build up experience and kind of take a stepwise approach rather than just expecting to be able to jump in straight yeah. off the training. And acknowledge that when you're starting out, you might not get the say of, oh, I want this or I want that. Like I literally took every single opportunity that I could like jam my way into. Like at one point I was literally cold emailing people when I, I saw on the news, like an article about what they were doing in a place. And then I Googled them on LinkedIn or something or their university email. And I found that contact and then I emailed it and I was like, Hey, this is what I do. This is my experience. Here's my resume and my skill set. Um, could I join your project? And then that's like literally how I got involved. So to that end, I would say there's really no limits to the value of networking if you're you know good about it. Like I, I kept saying, I've just been very fortunate in being in the right place, meeting the right people at the right time. Um, and it, it's because of that. Like you get your name out there and you do a good job on one thing and then that person remembers you. Because, you know, like the international humanitarian medicine, disaster relief, whatever industry is very small and incestuous. So like if you make a good name for yourself in one place, then some recommendation comes along for you. That goes a long way. But also if you burn yourself because you did a shitty job in one place, you know, that also goes a long way negatively. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that, I was going to ask you, is there anything people should avoid or watch out for? But I think you've already answered that question quite well. Yeah. Um, don't be a stupid like gung-ho butthole basically <laughs> great <laughs> okay well Coco thank you so much for um for talking to me today it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and I feel like I could speak for hours thank you so much for having me I really enjoyed this talk good and what's next on the agenda for you uh well I have to serve out the rest of my military contract but maybe after that I'm thinking of having the military pay for medical school Ooh. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Like I, I purposefully did this to step away from medicine for a little bit. I was really burnt out from COVID, not going to lie. I was really like seeing some third world level BS in a first world country. And it was a lot of it was from, you know, like politics and just, like not how things should be. And after a year and a half of that, I was just like, I got to take a break. Yeah, understandable. I, I don't think many of our listeners will have worked through COVID, so won't probably have the same insight that you do into the level of burnout that we were seeing amongst medics during that time. Well, that's very fortunate. Like, yeah. that's very, literally, okay, I don't know if you have, can I just like say a minute of how I ended up in this situation? Yeah. So I came back from Afghanistan in March, like 2020, and pretty much as soon as I came back, like COVID popped off. And my firm that I was working for went remote right away. So it's not like I, I needed to be somewhere to show up to an office. So all of a sudden, like I had no home and no place that I needed to go for work. So this company picked me up for COVID work. And then I was in California for three weeks. And then I was in Matamoros for a few weeks. And I was in New York for two months, you know, and then it was just like bouncing back and forth all over the country. And by and large, I, I've been doing that but internationally for like the last few years but I always had like a place to return to doing that in the U S like without any place to return to meant that between each COVID contract, I had to find a place to stay. That was like quarantinable. Cause I can't, you know, it's kind of a bad look to go from COVID ICU to staying with a bunch of friends and then to another COVID ICU. So it just, it was so exhausting. Like 
renting a car, buying duplicates of multiple things that I own. Like I have storage units in my home of record state, but it's not practical to, you know, fly there, pick up stuff you need and then fly to the next place. So I literally, I, I ended up with, I think like 15 sets of scrubs or something like that. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and at the end of it. Like, yeah, that sounds yeah, I was just like, I was exhausted because I, I worked, I worked um, my normal, like, consulting job during the daytime and then at nighttime I would work COVID so it was like I don't know 20 hour days wow but yeah it so I did that until Feb February or March 2021 when I joined up so almost a year and a half well I hope the army is a nice break that you deserve after all this well I don't know about that but it's it's definitely been a change of pace and it's it's been interesting so I'll see where it takes me Great. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you very much for doing that. That was a really fascinating conversation. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is sponsored by World Extreme Medicine.